Israel's ancient religious high court, called the Sanhedrin, has been resurrected in our lifetime and is part of Bible prophecy being fulfilled. The reemergence of the Sanhedrin is a fascinating development and one necessary to the law in a Jewish state. The Sanhedrin was most famous in history for conducting the trial that condemned Jesus. But now that the Sanhedrin has been reestablished and is in the news again, all prophecy watchers should take a great interest in the Sanhedrin's latest warning. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. The biblical court that famously condemned Jesus to death, claiming that he was a false prophet, is back in the news. That religious court is called the Sanhedrin. This ancient assembly or council of religious leaders became a part of Israel's life in the days of the Old Testament. But by the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin dominated almost every aspect of Jewish life. The council was subservient to Roman law at the time, but they tried their best to oppose and attack everything Jesus taught. He was arraigned before this court, as well as the apostle Peter, John, Stephen, and Paul, who were tried as teachers of error and deceivers of the people. The old Sanhedrin has a bad reputation in the pages of the New Testament, but the origin of this assembly has a God-ordained basis going all the way back to the 70 elders or judges appointed under Moses to help govern the Israelites in the wilderness. But now let's fast forward to our time and recognize that an assembly of prominent rabbis has reinstituted religious court in Israel, which they also call the Sanhedrin. And this council is decreeing some solemn rulings on very controversial issues. And one involves rights over the most contended piece of real estate and rock in the world. Now, even though the Jewish state exists once again, against all odds, it's one of the great ironies of our times that both Jews and Christians, the Saturday people and the Sunday people, are actually barred from visiting Jerusalem's Temple Mount during most hours of the day. And unbelievably, Jews and Christians are never allowed to pray at the site or carry holy objects with them, like a Bible. Israel recaptured the ancient capital of Jerusalem in 1967 during the Six-Day War. Yet, they're still capitulating to the Muslims by allowing Muslim authorities to run the Temple Mount. Well, recently, the reconstituted legal court of religious Jews, the Sanhedrin, issued a statement of warning to the United Nations, in particular, the UN's educational, scientific, and cultural organization known as UNESCO. The Sanhedrin warned UNESCO not to meddle with or try to revise the well-documented history associated with the Temple Mount that's located inside Jerusalem's old city. The disputed area is actually considered Judaism's holiest site, and the Jews historically have a higher claim to the area than any other religion. This is where the two ancient Jewish temples stood. 
But the UN agency, UNESCO, wants to adopt a resolution that would declare the site as sacred only to Muslims. Well, given the Jewish history of Jerusalem and the Jewish longing to return to their ancient capital and to rebuild their long-lost temple, such a resolution by UNESCO is considered preposterous to the Jews. And evangelical Christians also believe the proposed resolution is an affront because Psalm 2 declares the Lord has installed His Son on His holy hill. When the Lord Jesus returns to make His claim over the earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, He will rule Jerusalem and the world from the throne of His ancestor King David. In the meantime, any attempt to Islamize the area, known as the Temple Mount, runs contrary to the will of the God of Israel, as stated in the Bible. After all, the Quran does not mention Jerusalem once. On the other hand, Jerusalem is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. UNESCO's interference would deny any Jewish link to the location. So you can see the Sanhedrin was compelled to respond. The Sanhedrin also expressed outrage over Palestinian efforts to destroy archaeological evidence on the Temple Mount in an attempt to erase historical links between the Jews and the site. Sanhedrin spokesman Rabbi Hillel Weiss explained that the temple is intended to be the place where all nations come together to serve God in peace. But by enabling the Muslims to change the Temple Mount into the antithesis of this idea, he said UNESCO is doing the very opposite of their stated mission to unite the nations. The rabbi also said that by allowing Muslims exclusive access to pray openly on the Temple Mount, the world has chosen priests of war and terror. He asserted that the world must allow the true tenants of the Holy Land and genuine lovers of peace, the Jews, to be the priests to represent all the nations on the Temple Mount. Well, sadly, tragically, most Palestinian leaders today routinely deny well-documented and historical Jewish ties to the Temple Mount. They call the Lord's compound the Haram al-Sharif. However, we have a copy of a guidebook to the Temple Mount that was published in 1925 by the Supreme Muslim Council in Jerusalem, long before Israel was restored as a sovereign nation. That Muslim publication describes the Temple Mount as Jewish and the site of Solomon's Temple. The name of the official 1925 pamphlet is Guidebook to Al-Haram Al-Sharif, and it states on page 4, its identity with the site of Solomon's Temple is beyond dispute. I repeat, the Muslim pamphlet says the connection to the Jewish King Solomon is beyond dispute. Furthermore, the guide states this, too, is the spot, according to universal belief, on which David built there an altar unto the Lord. 
So the Muslim guide of 1925 agrees with the Bible. But time has moved on and the enemies of Israel now want another narrative. Well, dozens of archaeological digs have verified by experts and they continue to reveal Jewish artifacts from the first and second temples, as well as more than 100 ritual immersion pools believed to have been used by Jewish priests to cleanse themselves. The cleansing process for temple worship is detailed in the Torah. Concerning the Western Wall where Jewish people pray, the Muslim narrative today is that the structure was part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which sits on the mount, even though the Western Wall predates that mosque by more than a thousand years. The first Jewish temple was built by King David's son, King Solomon, and was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was built after Jerusalem was freed from Babylonian captivity. The second temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire in AD 70. Each temple stood in Jerusalem for several centuries. But the Palestinian media regularly insists that the Jewish temples never even exist. In Jewish hearts, the temple has remained, however, a focal point for thousands of years. Ever since the second temple was destroyed, the Jews had been praying for a return to Jerusalem and for the rebuilding of the temple. Next year in Jerusalem has been their continual cry. So the Temple Mount continues to be a place of controversy and clashes between those who worship the God of Israel and those who worship the God of Islam. Unbelievably, on the Temple Mount, there is a prohibition against all non-Muslim prayer and a prohibition against any motions that resemble praying or speaking to the God of Israel. If a member of Israel's priestly class a Kohen wanted to recite the Aaronic priestly blessing inside the Temple Mount compound. He would have to carefully couch his words within what appears to be normal conversation. As a matter of fact, recently a Kohen went with a group up to the Temple Mount, and even though they were constantly surrounded by Muslim police and they were under much scrutiny, he said conversationally in Hebrew to his friends, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his face unto you and give you shalom. That's the blessing he gave to Israel as if in conversation. But God heard it. We still have some heavy prophetic history ahead of us that the world must soon pass through. Tragically, Jesus foretold that the temple of his day would be destroyed. That was the second temple, known as Herod's temple. And the prophecy of Jesus can be found in the gospel in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 where it states that Jesus left the temple and he was walking away from it when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked, 
Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every stone will be thrown down. That prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when Judea fell to the Romans. And after the Romans burned the temple, every stone was overturned as the soldiers searched to pry out the gold that had melted in between the cracks and crevices. Centuries later, when the Muslims captured Jerusalem, an Islamic presence occupied the mountain. The most prominent building on the Temple Mount today is a shrine with a golden dome called the Dome of the Rock because it's built to enshrine a sacred rock where Abraham offered up his son Isaac. Islam honors a rock, but unfortunately, Islam doesn't yet know the rock. Jesus, the rock of our salvation, I'm talking about. And Isaiah 26, 4 declares to the world, trust in the Lord forever, because in Yah, the Lord, is an everlasting rock. Someday soon, the nation of Israel will also discover that Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, is the rock of ages. Interesting that the only mention of deity in Israel's Declaration of Independence is a reference to the rock. So Jesus is hidden even in the Declaration, but he has gone with his people nevertheless throughout their history, just as 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 declares. It says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. A translation of the Declaration Scroll starts like this, and I'm going to quote from it. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. After being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it of their political freedom. The Scroll of Independence is a biblical-looking scroll. The signatories ended the declaration with the following statement and the only direct reference to God and ultimately to His Messiah. They wrote, Placing our trust in the rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation on the soil of the homeland. And the date was given on the Hebrew calendar, which on the calendar today is the 14th of May, 1948. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, read the declaration establishing the state of Israel and this was followed by a rabbi saying the traditional blessing called the Shechianu, one of the most beautiful and anointed Hebrew prayers and one of my very favorites. It goes like this, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has granted us life, who has sustained us, and enabled us to reach 
this occasion. I love that prayer because it acknowledges God's hand in bringing us to special seasons that we have deeply longed for. Blessed are you, O Lord, O God, King of the universe, who has brought us. You have preserved us and brought us to this season. Hallelujah. So it's a joyous and happy prayer of faith. The first time I became aware of the beauty of the Shehayanu prayer was when former Soviet refusenik Natan Saransky finally arrived in the land of Israel after years of being in an oppressive Soviet prison. And the first thing he did was walk to the Western Wall to pray the Shehayanu. Truly the Lord had preserved him and brought him to this season of the restoration of the people of God. The Shehianu is recorded in the Talmud, indicating that it has been recited for over 2,000 years. Now, as we've discovered, Jesus is that rock hidden in Israel's Declaration scroll, just as he seems to be hidden in the Hebrew Scriptures, yet he's very clearly there. At the time of the founding of the Jewish state, some rabbis wanted the Almighty to be mentioned in the Declaration, but some of the secularists would not permit it. So, in the end, the consensus was to include the name The Rock. The name is a mystery soon to be solved. The Bible says that the Messiah is a rock of offense. Many stumble over him and fall on him. In fact, there's an amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, which prophesies that Messiah is a rock. He's a stone cut out without hands. That will ultimately crush Satan's kingdom within the nations in the last days. This was the stone which the builders rejected because it was not cut out by human hands. But he has nevertheless become the headstone of the corner. Isaiah 28:16 declares prophetically of Messiah, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3:11, he picks up on that thought. He wrote, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus the Messiah. And because the church is built upon Christ the rock, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Well, rocks by nature are long-lasting, but Messiah Yeshua is the rock who abides forever, he being styled as the rock of ages. Selah. Well, as a prophetic intercessor and watchman on the walls of Jerusalem, I have to warn you, because of the miraculous rebirth of the nation of Israel, we're living on borrowed time. The church age will not last indefinitely. There's a set time for the completion of the church. It's called in the Bible the fullness of the Gentiles. And when the last Gentile is saved, the age of the church will conclude suddenly. As the Apostle Paul taught in the New Testament, the church age is a mystery that was hidden in God. It manifested as the mystical body of Messiah 
and it will soon end in a mystery called the rapture when Jesus appears suddenly in the atmosphere to snatch his bride, his true church from the earth. And then the age that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles will be finished. And the relatively short age called the great tribulation, Jacob's trouble will begin when the history of Israel is brought to a culmination. The tribulation period will be followed by the second coming of Jesus, and that will be followed by his thousand-year millennial rule from Jerusalem. Daniel 9.24 is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible because it gives the history of Israel. It says, 70 weeks of Bible years are determined upon the Jewish people and upon the holy city of Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and so forth. 69 of those 70 prophetic weeks, Bible scholars say, have already been fulfilled in Israel's divine history. Daniel's final week, the 70th week of years that is determined upon Israel, will be the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, amounting to seven Bible years. Daniel's 70th week of seven biblical years will soon start God's prophetic clock ticking once again concerning the nation of Israel. So the times we're living in point to the fact that Jesus will soon return to claim his glorious bride, and then he will begin the process of restoring the Davidic kingdom back to Israel. You see, despite what many theologians have erroneously taught, God has never finished with Israel. He is and will remain faithful to his covenant with the nation of Israel. Their Messiah, Yeshua, is on the way. In the meantime, we're urgently believing the Lord of the harvest to win at least a million souls through this ministry in the remaining times of the Gentiles prior to the second coming of Jesus. We need to understand what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross during his first coming. The world doesn't look at the cross as a place of great exploits. The world wrongly views Jesus as a victim. But Jesus accomplished great exploits as he hung on the tree. Before we conclude today's program, I'm going to take a quick look again at the gospel in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 53 and verse 5, which was written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. It says that Messiah was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening, the correction, the punishment for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his stripes and wounds, we are healed. On the other side of the cross in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.24 quotes this messianic passage and declares that by the Lord's stripes, we were, past tense, healed. Now let's go back to Isaiah 53 in verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. It says in English, 
griefs, but in Hebrew, the word is he's borne our sickness, our disease. And it goes on and he carried our sorrows in the King James, but the Hebrew word means he carried our physical and mental pains. Hallelujah. So what an exploit Yeshua accomplished on the cross for us. Physicians testify that he suffered every category of wound so that you and I were and are healed. Jesus received piercing in every area of his body that relates to sin, starting with the crown of thorns. The crown represents our thought life, the theater of our minds. Jesus, the Son of Man, became guilty for our rebellion and for each and every unwholesome thought that we've had. And if we'll repent and believe on him and call upon his name, God promises he will forgive us and cleanse our thoughts and transform us into new creations with pure thoughts purged by the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, the Roman soldiers nailed his hands to the cross. Those holy hands were wounded on behalf of every wicked deed that we've ever committed with our hands. And John 20, 25 reveals that the scars in the Lord's body after his resurrection are permanent. The only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars of Jesus. The wounds on his knee represent the price for every time you and I have bowed to an idol and the nail through his feet was because our feet have taken us into darkness, despair, drugs, immorality, abortion, robbery, worldliness, every sin the world has ever committed. Every step of man in rebellion to God was laid on the feet of Jesus because Isaiah 53, 6 continues that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Finally, in John 19, 34, it says the soldiers came to break the legs of the crucified men to speed up their deaths prior to the Passover holiday. By then, having already fulfilled prophecies, Jesus had dismissed his spirit and was dead. But just to make sure, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. The side represents companionship and relationships and fellowship. So this represents the fact that Jesus took a piercing in his side for every failed relationship that we've ever suffered. Furthermore, Adam was put to sleep by God and God took a beam from the first man's side and formed his wife, Eve. And on the cross, Jesus fell asleep in death. And from his wounded side, God brought forth his bride, the church, by water and by blood. Yes, Jesus accomplished great exploits on the cross for you and me. And so I urge you to put your faith in his atonement today, right now, because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And Daniel 11.32, our theme verse, promises that those who know God will be strong and carry out exploits. So God is seeking sold-out intercessors and watchmen on the walls who will stand with us to bring in the million-soul harvest in the time remaining, in the times of the Gentiles. And if you would like to be a watchman with us, please stay in touch 
via the social media. And we also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our free color magazine, Exploits. And you can read and watch frequent prayer alerts. So until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom.